Welcome to She Critiques, where we discuss the new, the old, all things cinema. I'm Mercedes, television producer, certified reviewer, and all-around movie buff. So without further ado, let's get into this week's episode. I hope wherever you are under the sound of my voice, you are present and ready to receive the jewels that will be shared on today's episode. For my special guest today, I have Mr. Monty Ross. Monty Ross is most notable for his co-producing films with Spike Lee, with whom he co-founded 40 Acres and a Mule Filmworks. After forming a friendship at Morehouse College, Monty Ross and Spike Lee went on to produce such films as She's Gotta Have It, School Days, Mo Better Blues, Malcolm X, Crooklyn, Do the Right Thing, Jungle Fever, and Clockers. I found out about this gem of a producer after my aunt had a chance encounter with him in Virginia. Talk about divine timing. Monty has since been a mentor of mine, and I'm so pleased to have him on the podcast today. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the legendary film producer that is Monty Ross. Ross, first of all, thank you. I appreciate you. Every time I call, you always have some words of encouragement, words of wisdom, yeah. and you always come through. So I appreciate you, first of uh, all. No, the, the last time I was supposed to do something, and I didn't make it. It's okay. I mean, but it's, you've made up I'm, for you it. Know, the, weird, the weird thing is, uh, what I've always hated to plan ahead, and then according to organizational things that you're supposed to do to be organized and yada 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 right you're supposed uh-huh. to you know you're supposed to do that and it's just certain things about certain things <laughs> just don't work it's and, perfectly fine you've yeah. made up for it many other ways but i'm telling you you've always giving me advice i want to tell the people exactly how i met you actually we've never met face to face we've had many email exchanges phone calls um always been super supportive but i don't know if you remember this my aunt ran into you at a theater in virginia and i just remember she called me and she said oh you gotta you gotta meet this brother he down here running things at the theater she knew i was down here in atlanta wanting to get into entertainment she gave me your name and number and i went to google you and i said i had to call her back do you know who you just ran into because i don't think she knew who she ran Oh, man. But, um, no, I say that all to say that, you know, you've been a distant mentor, but nonetheless, you've always come through. Well, what, 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 what has happened? I mean, a lot has happened in Atlanta, Georgia, and film. What, where, where are you at these days? Oh, um, okay. I mean, I'm still working in television production, a lot of reality television. I just finished Iyanla. Iyanla fixed my life this season. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've just been producing television. I mean, but I realize also maybe you've gotten to this point as well where um, it's not fulfilling anymore. It doesn't, I felt like I was on the grind, trying to climb, climb, climb. And then you get to one position and it's like, wait a minute, you know, this doesn't really, my dream was to review movies. I always wanted to do film reviews and talk Mm -hmm. about film, you know, so that's where I'm at now, rebuilding that dream. Well, what about the Black Critics Association? Are you a member of those those folks? Yes, so I'm a, I'm a member. I know, that's a hierarchy right there, boy. Woo, woo! <laughs> no, Them I'm Negroes just... right there! Woo! <laughs> what does that mean? What does that mean? Man, <laughs> I know them brothers. 
brothers and sisters there, but you got to really kiss the ring if you're trying to get up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, well, it's been five years. You know, it always comes full circle. I met Gil Robertson and yeah. Sean Edwards from AFCA. I met them over five years ago at TV awesome, awesome. at Megafest, and they're just now inviting me to the table. You know? Yeah, man. They they hardcore. <laughs> That's hardcore right there because I know uh, he, I mean, he is very uh, protective mm. of his relationships and mm. and he is like, when it comes to, to, uh, to, to, uh, to just, he's, he's just very protective of, of everything. And if you're going to be a critic, a true critic, mm-hmm. <laughs> you it got to pay serious. some dues. Yeah. <laughs> he yeah. don't play. He don't play. I'm not mad at that though, because there's too yeah. much microwaving going on around here anyway. So, you yeah. know, I don't mind proving myself. But enough about me, Mr. Ross. This is about you. <laughs> this is about you. No, man. Okay, go ahead, go ahead. I, but I was I was interested to hear about you because you know, becoming a producer is not an easy thing. And if you're producing television, that's awesome, yeah. Reality TV is a different beast. It's a different beast. Uh, yeah. But um, we'll, okay, we'll we'll circle back around to me. But I want to get into you because I can't okay, miss okay. You know, the good stuff. You know, I've done some research on you, and just from knowing you, I know a little bit of your story. Um, I want to start from what took you from Omaha, Nebraska, to Atlanta, Georgia, Morehouse College. What what is the connection there? What made you say I'm going to Atlanta? Uh, Atlanta came about uh, the real story. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, it was two things happened. One, we went to a drive-in theater. My mom, my sister, and I went to this drive-in theater to see a movie. And so this was during the days when black exploitation, quote-unquote, black exploitation movies were really at their height. It seemed like a, it seemed like a movie was like every other week. <laughs> it was like you know, and so we were fully supportive. And uh, I see this promo for Atlanta, city too busy to hate. And it was a 30 second, no more than 40 second promo about the benefits of coming to Atlanta, Georgia. It was a mm-hmm. city too busy to hate. And Atlanta was one of the only cities that did not burn as a result of rioting, et cetera, that happened when Martin Luther King was assassinated. Uh, and you had that, that knee jerk reaction that black people had. And so we were sitting there and I was like impressed, you know, and black people, it, it, it was across, it, it, the promo basically, not only did you see black people being progressive, you, you felt like the city itself had opened itself up to being progressive. So that was the first thing. And then the second thing was one day in school, we chilling out, you know, uh, like, like black folk do, we kind of like chill out before we go to class. Mm-hmm. This beautiful sister comes walking through and everybody was like, yo, who is that? You know, and Carolyn was a counselor. She was like one of the first counselors, right? And, and she was like, yo, and I was like, yo, man, I got to switch my class. <laughs> so sure enough, I went in and, and she was in her office. And so three or four of us, like one dude would go past her office door and he wouldn't say nothing. And another dude would go past. And so finally, I said, I'm just going to introduce myself. Women always get you to your destiny one way or the other. One way or another. So (laughs) I go past and I say, hey, 
Uh, my name is Monty Ross, and I'm getting ready to go to, uh, uh, I, I'm thinking about, I'm on the fence about going to Morehouse College. You say, oh, wow, right? So uh, all the dudes is looking at me, you going to go in? I said, yo, I got it. I, I said, I'll see y'all later, man. Said, and she said, who was that? I said, it's just, just friends. You know, they were scared to come in and talk to you. I said, but uh, listen, I just need some advice. She said, well, who's your counselor? I said, man, don't worry about that. I just need some advice. <laughs> And then afterwards, I, I just made up my mind. I said, wow, look at the benefits. You know, you have the HBCUs there. Uh, Dr. King had gone to Morehouse. And so that was a really big influence. And, and then the uh, adjoining schools, Atlanta University Center, Clark, all that. I said, man, that is just, it felt like it was a Mecca. So. Nice. And you know, I've already done your introduction already. I've recorded that. But we're talking about school days, Mobetta Blues. Do the right thing, uh, Crooklyn, Jungle Fever, um, Malcolm X. I mean, the your filmography, Mr. Ross. You could sit on a pot of gold for the rest of your life. Not necessarily the gold, but just the gem of it. You know, not the monetary value, but the gem of what you've um, contributed. And talk about these films, you know, for the rest of your life. Yeah. I want to know, first of all, how did you meet Spike Lee? I know you guys went to the Morehouse together, but what was that first encounter like when you met Spike? I met Spike uh, through, uh, thank you for the, yeah, that in terms of the filmography and also add to that uh, two pivotal figures, which was um, Adam Clayton Powell, the Adam Clayton Powell story, which we did for Paramount and, um, and Showtime, and then the autobiography, well, Malcolm X as well. But I really, really feel honored to be able to have been able to produce those two films in addition to, you know, the, the other body of work. Um, Spike and I, it was funny, a mutual friend of, of ours named George Folks introduced us and he said, man, this brother's from New York and you're from Omaha and you both have a, a kindred spirit about about each other that I think you should meet. So bet. So we we were all friends in that sense, and uh, it was quiet. You know, I was quiet. You know, Spike was quiet, and then he barely said anything. Uh, and then I said, "Man, you know," I said something about the Boston Celtics being one of my favorite teams. And why did I say that? <laughs> he went in like you know, and I said, "Wait a minute, bro." I said, "I said first of all, Spike, do you play ball?" Do you play basketball? No, man, because of my size. I, I said, come on, man. Come on, man. You have Nate Archibald, and I made a list of <laughs> basketball. But I said, look, Spike, Spike. The Boston Celtics are one of the best teams, period. I said, the racism and all that stuff. I said, I'll, I'll learn more about that. But I said, the Boston Celtics are one of the best teams. And one of the reasons that my favorite team is because of the type of basketball that they actually play, man. Do you know anything about the sport? So that was our first meeting. We bumped heads and, and, and he went back and forth. I said, Spike, the fundamentals are the key to the game. So I, I kept it on the fundamentals of the game. And I said, man, anytime you want to get on the court, I'll show you some of this, some of these fundamentals. He's like, man, go on, man. I ain't messing with you. I ain't messing with you. And so from there, that, that friendship, we, start, we talked about basketball, of course, and then we started talking about movies. And then uh, I was in theater. So um, all the theater activities with the Clark College players, which was across the street, uh, across the campus. And so for me, I spent a lot of time over at Clark and Spike would actually come and come in and watch the plays. Mm -hmm. and, and so 
he was like, man, how do you learn lines? Yeah, he was very inquisitive about the process, you know. And I told him about the process and went through it. And uh, little did I know, he was actually taking notes and he was listening. And he also made notes about all of the, the, the cast members. And it just happened to be Samuel L. Jackson, happened to be Samuel L. Jackson's girlfriend, Latanya. Um, uh, Angela Bassett was, was, was uh, dating Kenny Leon. And, and so that was just, uh, we were all just, doing our thing as actors and producers and, and directors, you know. But uh, Spike was a student of, of that experience. And by that, I mean, he actually came to the plays. He actually sat in the audience and he would take notes. And we found out because Spike's mother passed um, freshman year, but we found out that, that Spike loved to take notes. And, and he wrote in his journal every day and this guy, wrote in his journal all the time, all the time. So little did we know that he was actually taking notes about his experiences, uh, what was happening to him personally, and you know his future ambitions. It was all in that, um, he had this date book and he, and, he, and he would meticulously write in the date book about what was going on and that sort of thing. And so I didn't know, I was just, I, for me, you know, I said, man, this is just what we do. It's just second nature for us. You know, we learn lines. This is what we want to do. We learn our blocking. We learn lighting, lighting cues and everything. And he's like, man, that's, that's amazing. And so about junior year, he declared his major. And then he just started asking me to do voiceovers for his class project. And so I would do a voiceover for his class project. Uh, then he said, hey, man, can you model? Can you, can you do some, can you do this? Can you do that? So, so uh, you know, the relationship grew, started to grow because now he was, wanted me to do voiceovers. Uh, if he did, if he had to do um, a visual presentation, I would do the voiceover. Because a lot of people say, well, you know, how, how did you all make this happen? Why did this piece fall into place? There's something about your work that you don't know about. Uh, you're hoping mm. that you will connect. You always are, man, I hope this is the one. I hope this is the piece I get the most. I hope this goes viral. I hope this happens, whatever, whatever, whatever. But that's the, that's the part of it is that when you're in sync, mm. when you're in sync, right? You may have a feeling like, man, rent's due today, all of that stuff, all of that, all of that. But you say, this tells me I should be doing this. Mm -hmm. Something just pushing me toward what I should be doing. I always tell people follow that because you, we didn't have anything. Right. And by following the intuition, I just following the intuition. Well, you know what? Because I feel like you all did a great job as well of being culturally responsible with the work that you stood behind. And I can't, would you contribute the projects that came, that you did with uh, 40 Acres and a Mule? Did the Atlanta University Center give you guys those tools of like, this is the direction we want to go. And we want to tell black stories, what they look like in this, you know, we want to stand firmly on a film like Malcolm X, like those, that must've gave you all, you know, the courage to say, okay, this is what the type of films that we want to do. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, one, of, one of the things about a college education, it is, as soon as you complete your 
your college education, it's, it is an entree into the middle class. And the middle class has a tendency to uphold itself in its virtue of the two-car garage, the uh, artwork that you can finally purchase, preferably African-American, uh, the bookshelf that you can have that's packed with all of the books of the, you know, of the diaspora from the James Baldwin of the world to the Maya Angelou to the new writers. It's, it's an aesthetic. It's the truest aesthetic. You don't need to be doing anything that's avant-garde, <laughs> experimental. Stay right here in the middle. And so what happens is um, you begin to have to say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I want to express myself as an artist. And I want to be able to look at story and be able to explore story and explore a certain degree of truth and pull that truth back so that we can look at ourselves and we can look at story and advance ourselves uh, from that aesthetic. No, they're not going to get, you know, no, they're not going to allow that to be because it, 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 it's too dangerous. Mm -hmm. So you have to express that yourself. You have to, you have to, you have to express it. Spike always said, hey, I'm not here to try to be a commercial filmmaker. I have to make money so that I can make movies again, but I just want people to talk. I want people to express themselves after they watch the movie and then talk about and discuss it. So that was his, his motivation for, uh, for making movies. Mm -hmm. And so that's why he made movies the way he did, is because these were the scenes that he wanted to see in a film, and this was the engagement that he wanted to have. And sometimes he stepped on a lot of toes, but that's what, that's what he was going for as an aesthetic, as an artist. That makes me think, even as a producer, were you able at all to, to watch any of the auditions or audition tapes? And if you were, okay. was there anybody who you right now can come to mind where it's like, I saw this person audition and I was like, wow. Yeah, I would say, yeah, the, at the audition, yeah, it was, it was a chance to, you know, sit down and, and you know, for right quick, you know, um, to, to, to actually see the, you know, the you know, the audition process. And I would say for all of the movies, each person, uh, for example, Tommy Hicks, you know, Tommy Hicks was that, that you know, you, you spoke about the muses. Tommy Hicks was that first seasoned actor that we mm -hmm. got a chance to work with, you know, one of the first. And you, there's something about his, his mystique, something about his persona as an actor you just know it's there. And so she's got to have it. Bam, Tommy resonated. You could, you could just see. Uh, when it came to school days, Bill Nunn in school days, um, Samuel Jackson, you know, there, uh, Jasmine Guy, all, all of the folks that you, that you see and have since gone on and, and have had wonderful careers. One of the things about them, there's, there's, there's something about them and their characteristic. And when they express themselves, you get the feeling like, wow, this person really has something really special. Same thing with uh, Halle, Halle Berry was, was, was that way. You know, um, Alvin tell the story, I had to, we had to um, pick up her portfolio because she had someone you know, who was going to be uh, looking at, I think she was auditioning for another project and we had to get her portfolio and she asked me to take her to get the portfolio. And I said, sure. I said, but the only problem, I got a car full of guys because we just got off work. And she said, no problem, let's go. 
So literally, Hallie came in and squoze herself into the fellas, like, move over, move over, let's go. So we get up there to the uh, uh, to, to, to where she had to pick it up. We was up, up Manhattan somewhere. And so we get the portfolio. She came out with the portfolio. And she said, all right, guys. So Monty, pull over. So we pulled over. And she said, I'm like, y'all got 30 seconds to look at this portfolio. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you, let's go right in the middle of the portfolio and open it up, right? <laughs> sure enough, man, everybody was like, what? She opened up. Portfolio, and you can see this was her in her in her bathing suit. You know that part of her portfolio, and then Carl was like, "Oh my God! Oh hell!" <laughs> it's all right. Thirty seconds is up. Boom! Let's go, Monty. Take me to my next appointment. Hurry up! Hurry up! I was like, "Bet!" <laughs> so we drove up there, man. She ran in, dropped the portfolio off, came back in the car, we dropped it off, man, and. Uh, I just, we just knew it. being around her though, but being around her, she had no problem hanging out with the fellas that day. And she knew everybody wanted to see her portfolio and she knew what page on the portfolio everybody wanted to see and she had no problem doing it. But I'm just saying there was something about her as a person uh, in, that, in that moment that just let me know like Hallie is on her way and that you know she has a resilience and you know, she's, she's really tough because it's really tough out there in Hollywood mm -hmm. and so from Brooklyn we just cause, you know Brooklyn was our base you know so we could be ourselves in Brooklyn and be those independent filmmakers and independent artists that sort of thing but we knew that Hallie going to uh, Hollywood that I just felt like there was something in her personality that she would be strong and resilient um, and that she would, you know, achieve her goals, you know. So there were that kind of um, being around certain folks, being around Larry Fishburne, Lawrence Fishburne, you know, uh, there's that mystique that was, a, you could just tell there was something different of, of, about him um, that uh, you knew, like, eventually Larry Lawrence was going to be where he is, you know, as a as a filmmaker. So Kadeem Hardison, this, you know, you know, the same, you know, the same thing. Jasmine and all those folks. And when I see when when you when you're hanging out with them, you, you kind of tell, you know, they're on to, to to something that's going to be very special and magical, you know, in their careers. Right. And when it comes to um, just the the climate today and what's going on in society today, I mean, so many people revert back to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. Like the fact that this film was made in the 80s and it's still relevant today, especially with, you know, with George Floyd and just all the uprisings that we've had. How do you, I mean, did you know then? Well, of course you couldn't have predicted then that what would happen today, but it's almost a catch 22 that is still relevant today and what we go through. Um, what was the climate like in the 80s then? And then what parallels do you see today in terms of the film Do the Right Thing? In terms of the film and the climate, um, I would say the climate is pretty much the same in a lot of, uh, you know, there's an attitude about race that we have not tackled. We are afraid to really talk about each other and talk to each other to figure out, okay, that we are, we want the same things. 
We want our kids to go to great schools. We want our kids to be successful. We, we want a better deal on a car because, you know, the better deal on the car means that, you know, I can get great insurance rates and I can have a car that can last and get me from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I don't want to have any fear of it breaking down, et cetera, et cetera, you know, that we share a common, a common, a commonality. We share a lot about being humans first. But why do we see each other as black and white? Why, do, why don't we see each other as, as uh, people mm -hmm. and understand each other that we all go through and have you know, similar circumstances? Why can't we do that? You know, why is it that in context we can, but as soon as we leave, out of context, well, I don't really know you. Well, you just saw me in the restaurant and we just had dinner. What are you talking about? Why don't you know me in context? I mean, out of context, you know, wh who, why are these, why do these paradigms exist? And so the movie, um, to me, why do the right thing work was because Spike could say, these are the scenes I want to see. Mm -hmm. Meaning the interaction that you have and can have came from a cultural expression of, I don't necessarily want the influence of Hollywood and a three-act structure to dictate my relationship and how I relate to people. I want to say what I want to say, and I want my characters to say what they want to say, and I, I and I want white folks to say what they want to say. I, that unspoken aspect needs to be said, and it needs to be expressed. And so that's what I'm gonna write. And sure enough, in the discussions that we would have together, I write it, man. Write it. If this, if this is what you want, to say, if this is what you want your character to say, say it, say it. You know. And so when people read the script, they were like, "Whoa, this is this is like, you really want me to say this?" And Spike's like, "Yeah, I want you to say that." So again, the difference there is, uh, Spike is allowing himself to say, these are the scenes I want in my movie, and these are the things I want said, right? And so writing meticulously for um, this, the overall script itself, but writing for those scenes, now, now as a director, now as a producer, now, you know, we just want to create the best environment for him to do that. We want to make sure that the mural on the wall represents something, the Mike Tyson mural. You want to make sure that culturally all of that, you know, fits. But at the same time, when you get down to the expression from the characters, it's based on the characters finally being able to say something. Therefore, society is able to say something. So as opposed to skirting around the issue, right, and, and making sure it's very formal, politically correct, you get into uh, conversations that people have every day. Right. Um, as a producer, you know, we always have to kind of pull some rabbits out our head yeah. uh, just to make some things happen, you know, that when things are going catastrophic <laughs> and you have to make some things happen. What comes to mind when you're like, man, watching whatever film it was from your catalog that you're like, I can't believe we pulled that one off? Uh, you know, I, I, well, one of the things is that uh, can't believe we pulled it off. 
I don't know if, if it happened like that. I think for us, the way it happened, when I, be, when, when I became like Spike's producer, ooh, I think my relationship with Spike was, how do we do it, right? <laughs> so, so in terms of, in terms of, in terms of, in terms of that, like any project that we worked on, he said, okay, Monty, I want you to think about this in a certain way and then get back to me. And, and a lot of times he didn't say that because, you know, Spike became the star of his own thing. But for me, I was left with having to figure it out how to make it work. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and so for me, I would say like, uh, uh, I was always more impressed by, by I, I could make it work. I can make the numbers work. But where, what I was impressed with was uh, Ernest and Ernest's contribution to the images. And so each person, each person who was who was in charge of their their department, their contribution along with Spike. That's what I really, really uh, appreciated. And so. The, the whole pull off part of that that question, the whole pulling thing something off, pulling something off meant like, wow, look at the contribution that was allowed to happen to make Clockers look the way it did, to make Malcolm X look the way it, uh, you know, Spike's mm-hmm. uh, signature shot was used and incorporated and etc. So watching that part of it, yeah, um, and so Michael, Mike. Um, uh, micromanaging productions, whether they were large budgeted projects or small budget, it didn't make a difference, commercials, music videos. Um, for me, it was, you know, making sure we, that each person, well, each key um, person on the crew uh, and department could make, sh- make sure that they could express themselves with, within that construct. We're gonna do some lightning round questions. So I'm gonna okay, ask cool. you a quick question. You give me the first answer that comes to mind. Okay. okay. Don't think too much. I want the first thing that comes to the top of your head. Okay, you got it. <laughs> uh, the first time you saw yourself represented as a black man on screen, what was the film? Like me being in it or? Like something that you could relate to. Like you saw a black man on screen and said, wow. Oh, Lady Sings the Blues. Billy D. Williams? But, uh, it was Billy D. Williams. Yeah, Lady Sings the Blues. Okay, okay. Um, what's your go-to film that you could turn on? You'd never have to turn it off. You could go to it and watch it any day. Uh, Godfather. Ooh, okay. Uh, favorite actor to watch execute a scene? Uh, Al Pacino. Um, Al Pacino, Marlon Brando. Uh, maybe... Maybe Denzel. <laughs> yeah. I was gonna say Wesley too. Wesley Snipes is so unsung. That Wesley man is amazing, but that's a different story. Um, yeah. <laughs> love to watch him execute. Joe Pesci. Oh, Joe Pesci is a good one. Joe Pesci is a good one. Meryl Streep. Oh, Meryl okay. Street. You throwing them out there now. Yes, yes, yes. Meryl, because uh, uh, Jeffrey Wright. Oh, I haven't. Okay, okay. Jeffrey, Jeffrey, uh, Jeffrey strives to be different 
each character has his own place for Jeffrey. Jeffrey is very capable as an as an actor to give you what you're looking for in terms of the character. Yeah, as far as like like you know answering the question like you say work the character. I mean actors who work through characters and Jeffrey Jeffrey is right up there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what's a film that you know all the words to? You know all the quotables. Godfather one or two. Godfather one or two. So you must have liked the mob films. You into Goodfellas and all that. Um, uh, I think for me, uh, what what I like more about it, not necessarily because you get killed or you can't kill. Uh, I always like leader, leadership. Hmm. Yeah, I always, I always like that. I always like that leadership in movies. How do you feel about Martin Scorsese? Oh, uh, he's one of my best directors. Yeah, he's up there. He's definitely yeah. Uh, yeah, Mar- Marty is, is right up there. Yeah. And what I will, um, I usually do this podcast. We do a a classic film, and then we we tie it to a modern counterpart. But I could not find any modern counterparts for the films that you guys have contributed to. And would you say, do you see anything today that you're like, oh, they got that from us. They got that from Spike. Yeah, Dear White People mm-hmm. uh, feels like, definitely feels like a combination of She's Gotta Have It and certain okay. scenes in school days. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Okay, that's a good and one. And I really appreciate that about, I really appreciate about them because there were certain elements that, are, that, were, that were missing uh, but in Dear White People, they get, they, they, they're really filling the blanks utilizing that. It feels like they use that platform. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, I love, um, I love Dear White People. It's one of my favorite, uh, um, favorite, favorite shows on right now. What are you watching right now? What do you, have you been into Lovecraft Country? No, I, I want to watch that one. I haven't watched that one. Uh, I think I think I've been watching. You know, I'm waiting for the like season four of Ozark. Uh, <laughs> you know, and I, I watched some pretty good documentaries. I watched uh, what did I watch the other day? Um, I I looked at uh, 1917. I looked at that. Mm. Um, yeah, but uh, Westworld. Me? I like Westworld. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Anything that you want to give, uh, lastly, to any budding filmmakers or producers, any words of encouragement? Yeah, we are entering a time when um, uh, the business model has to change. Your business model really has to reflect a business, meaning um, it's not only about making the film, but it's also how you interact with your audience. And I say that because uh watching a movie is one thing but watching a movie now has become very common we all watch movies because of the proliferation of content there's a lot of images that we see all the time but what's your business model uh for not only watching your film but when i come to your website uh how engaging on that website are you you know don't you can't just leave it to netflix you can't leave it to Amazon. You can't leave it to anybody now. So that means our products and your company, your company has to be in line with, um, your company has to be in line with a regular business. And by that, I mean um, African-American business is being looked at now as like, look, 
you have to be self-sufficient. So, so there's merchandising that you can have there. There are podcasts that are going on there. There are so many, you know, creative elements now to filmmaking. So just because you have the film is one thing, but as a company, uh, are you growing your audience now? Because, you know, without theatrical, you have to be able to grow your audience. And so right now, if my advice is, look, download the media kit for uh, Black Enterprise, download the media kit for Ebony, download the media kit for Essence, download the Oprah Winfrey's media kit, uh, because what you'll find in these, these kits, of their media kits, is that, you know, Oprah is prepared uh, as a businesswoman to receive content, to find the money for the content, <laughs> to produce the content, and she can verify through her analytics who her demographic is, whether it's social media, whether it's buying a magazine at a grocery store, you know, Oprah has you covered. You know, we see Oprah a lot of times and we're like, oh, Oprah, Oprah, Oprah. Yeah, 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 oh man, she got it going on. You know, yo, yo, yo. No, when you break down her media kit, you're going to see her company and you're going to see why her company can make the impact in all of the areas of content delivery. Right. Thank you so much for uh, the, the gems and the wisdom, Mr. Ross. We appreciate you. I appreciate you as well, yo. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of She Critiques. I'm your host, Mercedes. You can find me on all platforms at Chic Critiques. That's C-H-I-C-C-R-I-T-I-Q-U-E-S. And we look forward to the engagement and all the feedback. Take care. <laughs>